Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. My name is Matthew McGregor. I'm the campaigns director here at Hope Not Hate. We've launched the big annual State of Hate report. This is our annual definitive look at the politics of the far right, what they're up to and what we think they might do next. We were lucky enough to have Yvette Cooper MP speak. She's the former Home Secretary and currently chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee. She gave an absolute banger of a speech about online radicalisation, the failure of social media platforms to counter that hate, the mainstreaming of hate within political parties, and some more hopeful points at the end about what we can do to try and turn back the tide in these otherwise dark times. It's a great speech. Please listen to it. Read the report on our website, hopenothate.org.uk, and thank you for listening. Thank you very much. I thank um, Nick for the invite to speak at the launch of what I think is a very important and also sobering report from Hope Not Hate this year. The work of Hope Not Hate across the country is more important now than ever. Monitoring, analysing, campaigning against far-right extremism and hatred. And some of the work that they do involves huge bravery and determination to stand up to hatred and we owe you thanks for it from the work uncovering the awful plot to murder Labour MP Rosie Cooper to identifying new far-right networks online. We cannot underestimate the importance of the work that Hope Not Hate do. Four years ago, after our friend Joe Cox was murdered, the Home Affairs Select Committee, which I chair, began looking at hate crime and its consequences. And a year later, we published a report on the failures of social media companies to tackle illegal extremist content and hate crime online and called for more action. And we've taken further evidence since we'll be meeting this week to look at what our further programme of work will be. And along the way, we've often considered uh, powerful evidence from Hope Not Hate on issues ranging from far-right extremism, but also to work around cohesion and how you build consensus on wide-ranging issues as well. So I do have great respect for the work of Hope Not Hate and welcomed the opportunity to come and to respond to the publication of this year's State of Hate report today because it shines an important light on what it is we face and what we're up against at the beginning of a new decade. As Nick has said, the threat of far-right terrorism has continued to rise here and around the world. Traditional racist and far-right organisations here in Britain are at their weakest for years, but online, we have seen the growth of dangerous new far-right networks and movements. And the poison that they spread is now increasingly finding its way into the mainstream public debate. And in the face of that, frankly, there has been a failure of mainstream political parties to show proper leadership against racism and prejudice, a failure that should shame us all. And too many of us too often end up standing by while our national resilience and our sense of social solidarity, the sense of public decency that has always been the British bulwark against far-right agitators is being gradually undermined. And so today I want to touch on some of those points and also on how we should respond. First and most seriously, the report charts the rise of far-right terrorism across the world. In Hanau, just a fortnight ago, in Christchurch, in El Paso, and across the world, the poison of far-right terrorism has taken dozens of innocent lives in the last year. In the last seven years, here in the UK, we've seen three far-right terrorist attacks, including the Finsbury Park Mosque attack 
and the murder of our friend Jo, an MP on her way to a constituency surgery, something that would frankly have been unimaginable only a few years ago. Seven of the 22 plots that have been successfully foiled in the UK in the last two years were inspired by the far right. And across Western democracies, the number of incidents of far-right terrorism has increased threefold in the last five years. The Met's Assistant Commissioner, Neil Basu, the country's most senior counter-terror police officer, told the Home Affairs Select Committee that far-right extremist activity is increasing, including involving links between groups here and far-right groups in Europe too. It's why there have been growing far-right referrals to the PREVENT programme and why counter-terror police have recognised that they need new ways of working and more resources to counter both Islamist and both Islamist jihadist and extreme right-wing terrorism, which feed upon each other. And we should pay tribute to the difficult and immensely important work that counter-terror police and organisations do. Last week, the Home Secretary announced that two far-right extremist groups would now be prescribed, the Sonnenkrieg Division and System Resistance Network. Those decisions are very welcome. But the new evidence outlined today from Hope Not Hate about the order of nine angles is even more disturbing. The evidence they've gathered shows it to be a group which advocates the most extreme sexual violence and murder and propagates the most vile anti-Semitism and which has links to terrorist offences. The case Hope Not Hate have made for prescribing this group now is a very powerful one, which is why the Home Secretary should immediately refer it to the government's prescription uh, review group, the proper process for the prescribing of dangerous organisations because action needs to be taken to prevent them grooming and radicalising other people. Behind the rise of far-right terror threats has also been a changing pattern of far-right extremism and rising hate crime and the promotion of far-right ideology online and changing patterns of racism and prejudice as well. The former Met counter-terror chief, Mark Rowley, told us back in 2017 the ease and speed in which vulnerable people can be radicalised through online propaganda and then move to attack planning has been a shocking feature of many of our cases. As we saw in the Finsbury Park attack and many of the international far-right attacks too, what starts with hateful and bigoted ideas from far high-profile far-right personalities that go unchallenged online can end up leading people to the darkest and most dangerous places, cesspits of hatred and extremism online. And in the most extreme cases, vulnerable individuals end up on social media channels that promote violence, including terrorism and sexual violence too. And the Met's current counter-terror chief, Neil Basu, has warned the most dangerous threat often comes, as he said, from malleable, vulnerable people that are being sucked very quickly into this ideology and often having no touch points with the rest of society. And he also warned, as a proxy for where the country is going in terms of tolerance, rising hate crime must be seen as a very disturbing indicator. So today's State of Hate report provides a wide-ranging account of the way in which far-right extremism is being promoted online and through social media. All of us use social media. It's amazing. It gives us the chance to talk to friends thousands of miles away, to bring people together, to build progressive communities and networks, to promote new ideas, and to, promote, to support each other with solidarity. 
but it can also be poisoned. And at its worst, some of the alternative platforms, like Telegram, like 8chan, can be used to incite and organise violence and promote terrorist propaganda. And as Hope Not Hate have charted, in some cases promoting terrorist training manuals or instructions for carrying out attacks. And even the big mainstream social media channels are too often manipulated by far-right figures to radicalise people, to stir up hatred and division in a way that is corrosive to our trust in each other and to our way of life. The government has rightly promised legislation to tackle online harms, but some of those harmful are also some of the hardest to tackle with some of the smaller and alternative platforms. But this is the area where most international action is needed, seeking different ways to challenge the way these platforms operate, different ways to protect the public. And some of the biggest social media companies, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, whilst they are now rightly doing more to tackle extremism online, still need to go further. When we first took evidence from them on the select committee a few years ago, we were frankly appalled at how little they were doing at that point, how little they felt any responsibility to act, despite the fact that platforms were being used to spread poison, illegal and dangerous material to, that destroy people's lives. And we found, for example, the same propaganda videos promoting national action, a banned organisation on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter, many months after they had been banned, many months after we had reported that video to them. Three years on, those organisations are doing far more. They have brought in new staff to tackle content online, new standards, and are taking stronger action against far-right extremist groups. And Hope Not Hate have documented the positive impact of the decisions they've taken to deny certain extremists or groups the power to broadcast for free to millions of people. But serious problems still remain. Facebook still needs to get a grip on the closed and secret groups, sometimes many thousands of members in them, that are sharing hate and dangerous, offensive and illegal content, often to tens of thousands of people, often used to incite violence or criminal behaviour. And YouTube needs to get a grip on the way their algorithms are working to promote hatred. Last night, we set up a new YouTube account and searched for one of the groups listed in Hope Not Hate's report, Millennial Woes. YouTube immediately responded by putting forward a whole load of recommendations of other things we might want to look at, including videos of Tommy Robinson, who they claim not to be promoting, and lots and lots of videos of Nazis. So look up one thing out of curiosity, and YouTube is ever willing to offer far, far more often getting more extreme with every click, often pushing further out to the extremes, as that is the way their algorithms work. So don't tell me that YouTube can't tackle this. Google, who own YouTube, are the kings of the algorithm. They can use their algorithms to do anything, and they're one of the richest companies on the planet. Instead, they have become an organ of radicalization instead of taking responsibility for the way in which their algorithms work. And I think this is, frankly, immoral. Google, if Google will not sort this, then the government, with its new online harms legislation, must. But there is responsibility on all of us, and particularly for those of us in public life, because I think the most shaming part of this year's Hope Not Hate report is on the racism in Britain's mainstream political parties. As the report says, the Conservative Party is yet to solve its systemic Islamophobia 
and Labour has only begun to make headway on its anti-Semitism problem. It would be heartbreaking if it wasn't so horrifying for the biggest two parties in Britain, between them who have been in continuous government for more than a century. Labour, the party that brought in the Race Relations Act, the McPherson Review, the Equalities Act, now being investigated by the EHRC for anti-Semitism, the oldest hatred of all, because we have failed to tackle it. And at a time when anti-Semitism seems to be on the rise across Europe, our party isn't leading the charge against it. We are complicit in its rise. And the Conservatives, the party that appointed the first Muslim woman to serve in the cabinet, refusing to face up to its own problem of Islamophobia amongst its members. At a time when Islamophobia is on the rise across Europe, the party of Britain's government isn't leading the charge against it. It is blind to it. And our public institutions should be the bulwark against extremism. Our biggest political parties are currently failing in that task. So both main parties need to show humility, commit to change and to sorting it out. And that means being willing to face up publicly to the scale of the problem. For Labour, both all of our leadership candidates have rightly signed the pledges for action drawn up by the Board of Deputies, and we will have to prove ourselves with strong action, including independent, transparent complaints and proper leadership to rebuild the trust of Jewish communities. But the Conservatives, too, must take action to rebuild trust with Muslim communities across the country, or they will fail to have any moral authority in tackling racism or injustice if they continue to deny their problems and continue to refuse to open themselves up to a proper independent investigation into Islamophobia in their party. But the problems in our political debate go wider than Labour's problem with anti-Semitism and the Tories' problem with Islamophobia. The former Prime Minister, Theresa May and I have had many run-ins, many disagreements over the years. But on this that she said before she stood down, I agree with her. She warned about the coarsening of public debate. She said, some are losing the ability to disagree without demeaning the views of others. The descent of our debate into rancor and tribal bitterness, and in some cases even vile abuse at a criminal level, is corrosive for the democratic values which we should all be seeking to uphold. So we disagree on much, Theresa May and I, but we agree on this. Because the risk is that it is not just corroding our democratic values, it's corroding those very bulwarks against the far-right agitation that had been so important. In the last 12 months, we've seen a 10% rise in recorded hate crime, more than doubling over the last five years. The Met Commissioner, Cressida Dick, has said the number of threats faced by MPs is now unprecedented, with the number of cases reported to the police doubling in a year. In one week, my office had to report 35 threats to the police, but I haven't had the worst of it. Diane Abbott received almost half the abusive tweets sent to female MPs in the 2017 general election. Jacob Rees-Mogg's children have been bombarded with abuse in the street. Luke Pollard's constituency office has been repeatedly graffitied with homophobic abuse. And Joanna Cherry had to have a police escort to a constituency surgery after a death threat. And more significantly, people are being driven out or stopped from putting themselves forward to be councillors or MPs in the first place. And most troubling of all, I know of many local campaigners and activists, not involved in political parties at all, but who were keen to do something practical or local in their communities who ended up giving up or going quiet 
because of the nastiness or abuse from a minority online. And Jonathan Evans, the former head of MI5, no one to be squeamish about the tougher threats in life, and now head of the Committee of Standards on Public Life, has warned that the pressure being exerted in public life and on MPs would be seen as a national security issue if it was coming from a foreign state. And I think we have to also, when we face up to the nature of the online abuse that's taking place, stop blaming Brexit for it or using Brexit as an excuse. Because too often I've heard people who felt strongly that we should remain blame Brexit for the rise in hatred and abuse. Too often I've heard people who felt strongly that we should leave blame the delays in Brexit for the rise in hatred and abuse. And the truth is nothing about Brexit should have made any of us, whatever our views on Britain's future relationship with Europe, start being nastier to each other on the streets or online. And Brexit didn't cause the rise of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It didn't cause the growth of Islamophobia in the Tory party. And many of us had begun warning about the increase in misogynistic abuse online here in Britain long before we had a Brexit referendum. Other countries, from the US to Australia, from Germany to France, have seen similar increases in online hatred, threats and abuse. Organised threats and intimidation targeted at Julia Gillard, Hillary Clinton or Greta Thunberg. Similar to the kind of escalating threats that we've seen here. None of them had anything to do with Brexit. So it's time, I think, that we all took some responsibility for our behaviour online and offline without hiding behind that future structural relationship between Britain and our European neighbours. Time for our political parties to, stop, to start sorting themselves out. Time for all of us to pause for breath about the way we treat each other online. Because we're British. Normally we are decent. Normally we're compassionate. Normally we're really quite polite. And when we talk to each other, we're friendly, even when we disagree most of the time. The shouting matches on Twitter, the sneering abuse on Facebook, the continued accusations of betrayal or treachery simply because others take a different view. I don't believe that's who we really are, but it is in danger of being who we become. Because whilst the vitriol comes from all sides, it undermines our resilience. It undermines our sense of decency. It undermines our sense of respect for our common humanity and social solidarity. And these are the things that have always been our British bulwarks against hatred or far-right extremism. The dehumanising of each other that takes place too often online makes it easier for the far-right to exploit, easier for those who are vulnerable to get drawn in. So instead of undermining that resilience, we should be building it up, strengthening those values and institutions and sense of common purpose that have always helped us resist extremism here in our country. And that should come from the top. Politics should be making things better, not worse. We should be standing up for kindness and respect for each other and for our opponents, challenging the vitriol that sometimes comes from within our own. It's why I've called for all parties to agree and sign up to a joint standard of, co of conduct drawn up by the Committee of Standards on, in Public Life and the Joe Cox Foundation. Why we should stand up for our public institutions and ways of working that promote facts, integrity, the rule of law and respect for others. And yes, that means an independent judiciary, the independent BBC, a free press, including strong local papers and an independent civil service. And why we have to challenge the myth perpetuated by some of those right at the heart of government and sadly some of those in our party too, that somehow 
To be radical, you have to be horrible. But to deliver real change, you have to be prepared to bully others to get it. It's rubbish, and all of us know it, but it is coarsening debate and corroding our sense of decency. And it's why the deterioration in the conduct of the government in recent months really matters. Because the matcho briefing about the bullying behaviour of Dominic Cummings, the getting armed police to march a young spad out of Downing Street, the briefing war engulfing the Home Office, the allegations against the Home Secretary, the threats meant against an independent civil service, the judiciary or the BBC, all of those things matter in terms of undermining our sense of how we should treat each other. I am all for governments being radical, for robust argument, for anger, injustice and defence and determination to achieve change, but it's quite possible to be radical and to be kind. It's quite possible to be fierce about change and friendly to others, to shake up the system and still show others decency and respect. And on left and right, ambition for change doesn't have to become aggression towards each other's, because we have a choice. And on the left, the kinds of changes we want to see, the better Britain we want to build, should always have kindness, compassion and respect at its heart. When one of the people who was later convicted for a threat against me was shouting outside my constituency office, I was at the time at the marking the great get-together with Joe Cox's family in Burstall. And that's the best of Britain, the bringing together of communities, the talking to our neighbours, showing kindness to strangers, going out into parks and streets across the country. Because that, in the end, I still believe, is the kind of country that we really are, a country which still hates hatred, and a country where volunteers still work to help hope not hate stand up to extremism. And that gives us hope. Decency, kindness, friendliness and compassion in the end always drown out hatred. As Joe said, we have more in common than that which divides us. Some will always try to divide us and to spread hate. That's why we should always stand up for kindness and respect, for resilience and social solidarity, for hope and not for hate. Thank you. That was an incredible speech and it was a privilege to be there when Yvette Cooper helped us to launch this year's State of Hate report. The State of Hate report is only possible thanks to the support of Hope Action Fund members who give five or ten pounds a month to support the work of our research and intelligence teams. If you're able to help support us too, you can become a member. Go to hopenothate.org.uk and click the big red button in the top right-hand corner. Anything you're able to give by signing up and becoming a member will make a real difference to the work of our teams. If you're not able to become a member but you'd like to help us anyway, one way to do that is to leave a review, a five-star rating on whichever platform you got this podcast. Those reviews and ratings are a really big, important way of making sure people discover this podcast. Thanks for listening. Ooh.